From Central Sauce and the Fifth Elements Podcast Network, this is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. I'm Elliot Tseng. I'm a content creator and Central Sauce contributor. With me, I have Brandon, a managing editor at Central Sauce. Brandon, what you working on? What up? Um, literally just exported a video. Um, doing a bunch of journalism stuff for my grad program. Bunch of uh, bunch of video stuff coming out soon. Um, yeah, you'll see it if you're subscribed to my newsletter, which you can find with the link in my bio on Twitter at Hoopla Hill. Awesome, Brandon. Great mustache, Ryan. Thank you. You got that are compliment like three here. times in just the last couple days. Something it does something genuinely must, look something good. Something different must be going on. I feel it. I feel the, the difference. <laughs> Ryan is here with us as well. He's a writer at Central Sauce and Football Paradise. Ryan, what you working on that you can tell us of anyway? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I just released an article about Futurama for Squiggly Animation Magazine. And uh, yeah, you'll see more of my stuff pop up on there as well, like some animation work. Uh, on the music side for my newsletter, I just dropped a article just about some albums that I'm going to be rocking through spring. And uh, yeah, catch me on Central Source 2 because I'm going to be covering an open mic Eagle show on there soon as well. Oh, that's awesome, Ryan. Great to hear. I'm working on some things too. I'm on Twitter at B-B-Y-G-A-N-G-E-L-L-I-O-T. And I'm doing some videos for the Baby Gang Magazine channel and my personal channel both of which is a collective that I work with. And I'm having a good time in life. But today, we're also going to be talking about some articles, as we usually do. We have a piece and an article, because one is not really an article. The piece is a YouTube video essay by FD Signifier called Drake and the Death of Hip Hop. I brought that one. And the other one is a piece for The Ringer, an article called Stories to Tell, The Deaths of the Notorious B.I.G. and Tupac Through the Eyes of the People Who Covered Them, and that's by Julian Kimball. But first, we want to begin with Brandon's piece. It's called Frequencies I'd Never Felt Before, How Deaf DJs Are Revolutionizing the Club Experience. It's by Becky Buckle from MixMag. Brandon, tell us about the piece. Ryan, do you wanna you wanna tell us about the piece? <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Ryan, tell us about the piece. <sighs> that I will. Yeah, so like Elliot just said, it's uh, how deaf DJs are revolutionizing the club experience. And um <clears throat> just with that name alone, something that piqued my interest. Um it's an interview piece with three deaf uh, DJs, uh, Troy Lee, Kikazaru, and Robbie Wilde. And yeah, just off that fact I was really drawn to the piece because um, I'm learning more about the deaf community and trying to understand and break down my own like internalized ableism Um, but it's not something I'm all the way clued up on yet and like this article really helped me understand uh, how deaf people interact with art and how deaf people interact with music particularly because like as a music lover I think we've all had that quite ableist thought of like man if I ever went deaf I'd be heartbroken you know but this piece kind of showed me that like it that's the wrong way to look at it and like art can still be enjoyed and music can still be enjoyed even while literally being being death and um it really opened my eyes to how 
um, these DJs are creating music um, that kind of for deaf people and like it gives them their own uh, interpretation of sound and I think there was a, a quote in there about I forget which one which uh, DJ it was but they said like they have no idea what commercialism is it's just what sounds good to them and I thought that was really interesting mm. there are a ton of great interesting quotes in this article uh, but before we get to those uh, Brandon tell me what you thought in this one yeah, well, I'm going to piggyback off what you said about, you know, becoming more aware about um, how the deaf community um, processes music and associates with music, because that's actually something that sort of, I think, started for me um, a few episodes ago on this podcast, where we talked about a piece by our co-host Soma Ghosh on uh, the film The Sound of Metal. Um, that's episode 29. Check that episode out. Definitely check out the film. It's about a deaf rock star or a rock star who goes deaf um, and sort of like his journey with that and the processing of it. And Soma in that piece detailed how, you know, there actually is a history of deaf musicians, right? It's not um, just something sensationalized in film, like it happens um, and it's been happening. And it's always nice to have sort of that historical context too, um, because sometimes, you know, you don't realize that just because something is being reported on doesn't mean that it's just now happening. Uh, and I think that that's context that Becky makes pretty pretty clear right off the bat in this piece, um, and especially in marginalized communities um, or, you know, disabled communities. Um, you know, a lot of these stories are happening, and they're just not in the public eye either because we don't understand them or we're not paying attention to them. Um, and there's a really cool... Like one of the one of the main like themes throughout this story in particular too is sort of how um, the advancement of technology is really integrated into the way that deaf people experience music, right? Like we have all this new um, music visualizer technology now, um, and she details like some of the tech that's used, uh, but also like leaves it really open ended to go into like how much further down the line this sort of tech can get, right? Um, and how because this has been going on and because it's an increasing trend, like there's just so much more room to grow. Um, and we're really sort of like at the cusp of this, you know, really um, progressive, really accepting like new wave of of deafness and music. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Elliot, what do you think of this one? Yeah, I think the interesting thing about the word marginalized is it's it's a word that we use often and because of that like many other words similar to it we kind of forget sort of the the stem of the word and like why it's used i think when we talk about marginalized people we talk about people that have been pushed to the periphery and turned into people that we we feel comfortable not considering they're in the margins um and ableism is something that we are confronting now as part of um in terms of, I guess, socially progressive-minded people in society globally. It's something that we're turning attention to because we recognize that it's another facet of how the world marginalizes people. Of how, you know, we don't, we're not even made to think about deaf people really in like a human way. We're made to think of them as like a tragic story that mm. we kind of, push to the side kind of like you know kids with cancer right and people who lost their legs and deaf people right like oh would hate to be like that what honor what, what nice people they must be to have gone through such bad things and then just never really consider you know 
them being in our lives. And the reality is that they're around us all the time. The reality is that they're even with us at concerts and they're with us in Discord servers and in different conversations. And they have obviously a voice, whether or not their voice suits what people think a voice should sound like or whatever. Deaf people are a significant part of our world. And even if they weren't, you know, significant in number or significant in visual, you know, visibility, they're still people and they still should be accommodated to according to what they need. And so I think the prevalence of um, deaf DJs in different subsections of, uh, you know, nightclub scenes and things like that is a very interesting, uh, sorry for the siren in the background, it's New York. Um, it's a very interesting sort of window into understanding first how deaf people can consume music. Uh, there's parts of the video of the article where um, there's discussion about like different experiences deaf people have and how they personally engage with the music, different frequencies that they are and aren't able to feel. Because obviously deaf is not just one sing singular thing, it's a spectrum of things and different people can hear different frequencies. And then different technology, like Brandon was talking about, that assists these DJs in hearing different frequencies and experiencing the music in all different ways. It's almost like, you know, fascinating of an idea of something that you can put yourself in of like, wow, what if music was like this, this almost like this map where so much of it is blacked out and gradually with different things that I can try out. I can maybe make parts of that map get brighter and brighter. You know, it's it's like this fascinating other way, you know, um, that we don't consider as non as, as hearing people, um, typically hearing people that I think allows us to understand deaf people in, in unique ways. And I also think that that speaks to a lot of their struggles, you know, as the article speaks about, for instance, how deaf people can feel very insecure and unsafe and specifically like concert environments because, um, you know, one person in particular accounts like if I'm in a crowd and I'm somebody's by me and telling me, you know, excuse me in my ear and I can't hear them and, you know, how crowds can get rambunctious and tight and all of a sudden that might be a situation where there's an altercation or I might be in some danger because somebody thinks that I'm fucking them off, right? And in reality, I don't know what, I don't have the capacity, right, to, to be able to hear what they're saying. Like, that's just not my physical capability. So I think we need these articles, these pieces, just this general conversation and coverage and art to expand our understanding, but also to really get us back to a more human way of viewing other humans to understand that like they're not just platitudes to put into a story. They're not just these these very generic tropes that we should fear becoming or we should you know unwittingly ostracize because we're 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 not treating them like human beings. We should see them as human beings with a whole spectrum of experiences that are fascinating and that we're not privy to. And of course, we should also be helping them, not in a sense of catering to them more than anybody else, but in a sense of understanding that they are less catered to than anybody else. They are marginalized and they are um, systemically and systematically brought to the side, and they are systematically disadvantaged. And um, 
it's inspiring also to see DJs bring themselves to more prominence and, and find their platforms. But it also is sad to consider as well the many people, the many deaf people who maybe don't have such heartwarming stories to tell about their experience with these scenes and with music. So I think that hopefully our listeners, if you're listening to the podcast, even if you don't read the article, that you begin to be expand your understanding of people with different disabilities because this kind of thing is you don't realize quite how ignorant you are until it's staring you in the face you know yeah and i think that's nothing to really be too ashamed about you know you can't just like uh what's the word just innately know all this stuff you can't just innately understand all this experience and that's part of the reason why i wanted to boost the piece is just so people go out and read go people just go out and listen and just understand other people's stories and go out their way to even if it's going and watching freaking coda they just one best picture just go and understand that experience of once and just like let that that kind of wash over you and understand what um how you need to accommodate because you might be in some position to be able to accommodate for 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 deaf people and to accommodate for the different able people in general. So um, yeah, a huge reason why I wanted to boost the piece for sure, and I just wanted to boost these people because I think it was um, Troy Lee who has a lot of initiatives he's setting up as well, especially like helping people to learn BSL. So uh, and yeah, and things like that. And like Brandon was saying, the development of technology imagine if it was more concentrated and like we there was a genuine you know a force put behind making technology and music that suits deaf creators more than more than it does because i bet the majority of the people creating musical instruments uh whether they're like you know like a typical musical instrument or an electronic one they are not thinking about deaf people because they what you know in a typical sense why would you just like I've read this piece and realised how much deaf people can have a connection with music, I'm sure they're thinking the same thing. So, um, yeah, I think it's a really important thing to boost. And shout out to Becky for the piece, just for the sheer concept of the piece. Um, it's really well handled um, because I don't know if, Be- if Becky is hearing or is deaf, but just letting people from the industry speak and from that space speak is... Uh, it takes like a removal of ego, which I really appreciate when writing, and something that I'm pretty bad at because I want to be I want to wow people with my writing, you know, I want to wow people with the uh, with the flowery language sometimes. But just to be able to take the step to the side and be like, okay, I know this isn't about me. Let me just put the mic in front of these people and just boost their boost their thoughts. And yeah, I thought that was really good. Um, yeah, so I just want to shout out some of the pieces, some of the quotes from the piece. Um, Kikazaru said, uh, raves are an amazing way to mix with society because the spoken language becomes useless. Music is an international language and so is rocking those dance moves. I think um, the piece has so many moments like that where it all just boils down to a love for music, you know, and it's just a really beautiful thing to see um, how music moves through people no matter what. And just how, at the end of the day, it's just vibrations moving through particles and it means so much to people. Um, Yeah, and I wanted to actually jump in on that quote because that was actually the quote that I was going to bring up for this point um, on how Becky 
sort of like talks about how your expectation when it comes to um, a scene centered around music and centered around sound uh, would give you the impression that deaf people are at a disadvantage there. But she actually highlights how um, a sort of a nightclub scene or a concert scene in some ways levels the playing ground for deaf people because even hearing people um, in such a loud environment are you know, communicating with hand signals or, you know, relying on means of communication that aren't so vocal and sound based um, and how in a way that that actually does level a playing field for deaf people as well in an environment, which is all sort of about, you know, reframing, you know, things as not as a disability to fix, but as just a different experience for people. Um, And that's a big part of the Sound of Metal film as well, where the main character is um, sort of in a, he's in a, what is it, like a recovery place that's for, um, specifically for like deaf addicts. Yeah. Um, and when, you know, as a musician where he wants to get his hearing fixed, um, and, well, actually I don't want to give too many spoilers for the film, but um, <laughs> basically it talks about re- reframing his deafness as, as, a, as a part of him and not something to fix. Um, and I think that that's just increasingly like, a better, like a more healthy way to view disability, um, not just for people with disabilities, but for people who are outside of those communities as well. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And uh, speaking of that, speaking of like catering to deaf people, Robbie Ward has to quote, um, a lot of nightclubs are already built to cater to the, for the deaf community, so the speakers are set on an angle to the dance floor, and so you can feel the vibrations of frequencies stimulate your bones, translating as sound in the brain. And yeah, I think that's again what you're speaking to, Brandon, about like how they're kind of at an advantage when it comes to that nightclub setting, um, when it comes to that club setting, that that electronic music setting, is like uh, the the physics of it of having the sound bounce in a specific way to translate the sound as best as possible. I thought that was really interesting, um, but yeah, uh, great piece, wonderful piece, really short and sweet. Um, and just interesting perspectives that open my worldview up, and that's that's valuable journalism. You know, that's why we do the podcast is to highlight things like this for sure. Absolutely, Ryan. So thank you so much for bringing it. And again, that's how deaf DJs are revolutionizing the club experience by Becky Buckle for Mix Mag. So check out Mix Mag. Check out Becky Buckle's work. Uh, check out this piece, and do feel free to check out more uh, commentary on deaf musicians and deaf music fans. If you have articles, uh, books, anything just that you want to recommend for us, whether to talk about on the podcast or otherwise, on these subject matters, please do. You're always receptive to that from you guys in the audience. Moving forward to an audio, more of an audio-based format, I actually am responsible for bringing this next one in. Um, it is a piece by the rising YouTuber FD Signifier, who commentates on numerous issues related to race and progressive politics. Um, and the video is called Drake and the Death of Hip Hop. So I figured it would be an interesting topic for us to talk about. Now, it's a, it's a pretty long video. It is an hour and 14 minutes long, and it is sponsored by HelloFresh. So, um, <laughs> But in, spe- in specificity, 
I think it's also a video that each of us can kind of, you know, I was thinking just take a piece about that we found particularly interesting and talk about. And maybe that'll lend to the audience a center, uh, a, a general sense of like um, some of the interesting points and, and, and discourses that are part of this video. And maybe you'll check it out or maybe you won't. So I'll first just talk about why I chose this just briefly because I think we've done some we've done some video essay stuff you know uh, talking about it on this podcast a little bit Ryan brought something great in about Encanto recently for this one this one's based about uh, hip-hop subject matter and it's on Drake and everybody's got opinions on Drake but I think it's really interesting to see a format wherein somebody takes the subject of like hip-hop discourse and talking about uh, you know, a controversial subject in hip-hop discourse being Drake and does so in a way where it's not just you know a one-off comment or something that we can easily sort of um, unpack very quickly it's something that takes a lot of nuance and conversation to digest this video and has a, a, probably some points that you'll disagree with and some points that you'll agree with, but ultimately doesn't serve as just like a hot take. It serves more as like a commentary on ideas of, of politics and apoliticism and Drake's music, as well as general themes about how hip hop has changed over the years. So Brandon, I'll start with you. What's something that you took from this video that you thought was an interesting take, whether you agreed with it or disagree with it? Yeah, so I think the core idea here is that Drake, um, you know, is sort of the front runner for having changed hip hop from this explicitly black art form into a worldwide phenomenon, which in hand um, has therefore erased some of the pro-black anti-establishment cultural capital of the art form. And this whole point basically leads to why Drake shouldn't be considered in conversations as one of the greatest hip hop artists of all time. Um, especially, you know, approaching from a direction of, you know, not just going off of sales numbers and why you shouldn't just go off of sales numbers in this topic. Um, and he, even though, you know, he says in the title of the video, Drake and the death of hip hop, he does specify at the end that hip hop isn't dead, um, that it's just different and that it's changed. And I think this really builds off of, you know, something I've thought about a lot when it comes to like commodification of, um, like cultural music specifically. Um, and then it's as, as these like art forms get commodified, it's sort of like a game of telephone almost, right? You know, like in the beginning, and he's talked specifically in this video, uh, which was great information for me to have as well, about how hip hop specifically in the beginning was very adamant about defending its black roots. Um, because a lot of what these artists involved had seen happen to things like rock and blues um, they were very, very much more adamant, even the gatekeepers in the industry, about keeping hip hop um, to its to its core there. But, you know, Drake sort of becomes this transitionary figure where because he as a person sort of shifts into this um, more numbers focused game, this more commodified version, um, you know, for various reasons that are discussed in the piece, which because it's such a long video, um, it sort of opens up that avenue to other artists. And he talks about, you know, there being pros and cons to this sort of thing. It's not all doom and gloom. It's not all negativity. Um, he talks about how it has brought more variety to the sound. Um, it's brought more variety to the artists involved. You know, he mentions how 
Um, artists like Kanye and Kid Cudi and Lupe Fiasco also play a part in opening up um, the variety of the sound and the variety of the artists behind hip hop. But he also mentions how these artists, you know, Kanye, Cudi, Lupe Fiasco, um, they maintain the the cultural, you know, pro-black capital in their music, whereas, you know, Drake sort of veers away from that to appeal more to a broader white audience, um, which is why, you know, he boosts his numbers up. And as you sort of like play this game of commodification telephone, you know, further down the line, you know, every time you get a little further down the line, you you sort of get a more um, version of, of the art form that is aimed at a wider and wider audience, right? It no longer becomes about making hip-hop. It becomes more about making the hip-hop that a white audience expects, right? And if you have a broad white audience who's not, um, you know, informed on the roots of the art, the roots of the culture, and they only have a very surface-level um, perception of what the music is and what the content of the music is, then the further down that game of telephone you get, um, the further away from those original intentions that the artists create the music because they're going for that commodification. You know, they're going for those sales and those numbers and they're targeting that audience um, without regard for the audience's own lack of knowledge on the substance of their music. And, you know, that's a, obviously a very quick summary of like an hour and 15 minute long video. Um, but he does a really good job of laying out sort of step by step all these really moving pieces. Yeah, I think you put that pretty succinctly. Ryan, was there something that you took from the video as well that you might want to point out as well? Uh, yeah, a lot of it was what Brandon just said. Like, God damn, man, you <laughs> took a lot of my points. But uh, no, no, it was it was, it was done brilliantly. But um, yeah, I did want to touch on the point of like the value of gatekeeping that he kind of brings up, and how it was because of gatekeeping that uh, hip hop was able to stay. I don't know what's the word. Not hyper commodified. You know, it was able to stay. Like he said. Um, you'd have artists like Jay-Z who understood the value of crossover appeal when it came to bringing money into hip-hop, but that wouldn't be the crux of what they wanted to do with their art. Their art would always be something else, right? You buy the album and it's it's pro-black, it's, it's anti-establishment, you know? Um, and maybe Drake is one of the reasons why we've seen Jay-Z become part of the establishment in some in a, in a lot of ways but um yeah i thought that point about gatekeeping and how we see gatekeeping as a very negative word and for the most part it is now right but um maybe it's a different thing in what uh ft signifier was describing but it was this kind of gated community where anyone could enjoy the music it wasn't you know he said in the video a lot of uh, the responsibility for hip-hop's growth revolved around white hip-hop heads and uh, their respect for the culture as well as their ability to help it grow. Um, There's music that everyone was able to, you know, enjoy, uh, but it still had a core to it that spoke to the black experience that um, that Drake just didn't speak to as much, you know. Um, he's, he One thing he does really, really well is pick up really, really good Drake um, quotes from interviews, um, a lot of them with Elliot Wilson, shout out to Elliot. Um, but he, um, yeah, takes a lot of research to do that. So that's not that's not an easy thing to do. I feel like whenever you write an article about uh, an artist, 
you have to like really dig in and do your research into interviews and like when it's clear that they've done that that's really impressive especially but, um, if you're not doing a first-hand <clears throat> interview with the artist right like you still need that voice of the artist in there yeah, exactly right. And he balanced it really well. Even if it's even though it's a largely critical article of Drake, he still had a lot of Drake's voice in there, which is really interesting. But um I lost my initial point. Uh what was he talking about? Oh yeah, Drake talking about him being kind of apolitical and him not him complaining about being not being seen as um like when Drake is the biggest artist of the century, it's not like, oh a black artist was the biggest artist of the century. People don't say that. And this kind of removal of Drake from politics and from the black experience, I thought was really interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that there's there's definitely parts there that we're, you know, the three of us are going to be pretty careful about talking about. But I think it's really interesting counter commentary towards sort of Drake's feeling ostracized, in a sense, by the black community um, on, on behalf of his blackness, really. Um, and I think that someone who's interested in talking about race uh, in relation to Drake, Drake in relation to racism and to blackness, might find a lot of insight from this video and what uh, FD talks about towards the end. I also, um, before we move on, want to talk about an interesting idea of sort of, there's a really interesting intergenerational commentary in this video in terms of hip-hop fandom and hip-hop culture. It happens in multiple ways. I think that there's interesting intergenerational commentary in terms of FD, like, sort of giving Drake his flowers as an artist. There are points where he definitely gives Drake's uh, gives Drake props as a songwriter, as a lyricist. He really is, like, effusive with praise about Drake's lyrical ability, which is not something you really hear people do very often, but I think it's a very interesting point. I think even though people might disagree with that, that there's an interesting linkage there between um, old heads, in a sense, people who are veterans of hip-hop and their combativeness towards newer generations and how much of that is valid and how much of that is really just the same old generational conflict that oftentimes isn't so logical as much as it is people grappling with you know, the times. And I think FD does a really interesting job, a really good job of, of trying to straddle that by saying, you know, here are the things of, of, from the generations prior to Drake that were great, that may have, may have been lost in, pre in current years. But at the same time, saying that, you know, the removal of those gatekeepers, for instance, did lead to a lot of progressive change, in particular because a lot of those gatekeepers did not exactly have the most progressive way of gatekeeping and without that and with that with this new era of hip-hop wherein things are not filtered anymore through certain groups of people from a certain location and instead it's instead like you know internet and social media and open to a lot of things uh by nature you get the rise of artists like danny brown and denzel curry and Rico Nasty, you know, you get the rise of different artists that never would have fit into hip-hop's sphere prior to the time of Drake. But partially because of Drake, and maybe more so because of just the changing of the times, now are able to find a great and acclaimed space in hip-hop. 
but I think that there's an also there's also something very refreshing about somebody who's able to stand his ground in terms of being you know positive about the positive elements of the traditions while still recognizing that ultimately you can't blame the youths for how things have changed and you can't center everything in this argument of how modernity is ruining everything it's a it's a, it's a thing that a lot of people do and i think a lot of people also sort of center drake as a space you know as a person who's a face of criticism that they can leverage against hip-hop and against the world today but even with drake being somebody who is worthy of a lot of criticism that doesn't mean he's worthy of all the criticism that he gets and in particular a lot of the criticisms that drake gets are based in like misogyny and homophobia and this idea of a manhood something that he's had to confront as he's tried to sort of assert his space as a as a rapper and trying to be the best rapper out in the competition element and him struggling with that him struggling with feeling like he's the top dog right but also in that sense of like the problem with drake isn't that he's new and that he's different the problem is more so what his politics really are and what that implication you know, what implication that has on not just hip-hop, but the world around him, because Drake is possibly the biggest artist in the world. So I think there's also a lot of interesting things to say about what hip-hop is doing as it changes and about bridging the gap between older folks, you know, and younger folks in being able to discuss really what those changes mean and what we can learn from our past as well as what we can be doing in the present and what we should be appreciative of in the present. And in hip hop, there's a lot of combat between different generations, between the old heads and like, you know, new like kids and whatever, like, and it becomes a very redundant argument, very reductive as well. So I think that this video does a really good job of unpacking that. Is there anything else we should, we should go over before we move on to the next piece? Either of you guys have anything to point out? I think the line in the video is really, really funny where he says, um, I'm sure Drake has a line on his income for dedicating money to charity, but so does Walmart and Walmart is not hip hop, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and, it, and it has to do it has to do with audience, right? Like he doesn't want to be too inflammatory to turn off his audience because a large, large portion of his audience um, does not understand, you know, and that's the whole that. That's where it speaks to the whole political situation of the country. You know, a large portion of the audience does not understand these things. So, you know, and they don't want to hear it in the music. So he's intentional about not turning off his audience with that sort of content, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's crowd-pleasing, isn't it, really, at the end of the day? It's, it's crowd-pleasing to get... It's all about money at the end of the day, right? It's opening up the market as much as possible, treating himself like a brand rather than an artist. And... For as much of a detrimental effect that has had, and for as much as that's contributed to, even though the internet has opened a lot of things up, a lot of indie artists struggling um, to make a living off their music because of their need to be hyper-commercialized and to make their music fit that fit that mold. Um, this is, like, for the idea that hip-hop is dead, like, it's my favorite era of hip-hop. Like, I don't want to go back yeah. to the 90s, to be honest with you. Like, if you take, if you give me the pool of artists now versus the pool of artists in the 90s, I'm taking now in a heartbeat. Like, it's true. It's just true. So, yeah. 
And um, yeah. one the final point is that at the start of the video, he compares Drake to pizza, and I think that's really unfair on pizza. I think <laughs> yeah. he really think that. Especially because, like, the picture of the pizza he used in the video was, like, it looked really, it looked like a really good pizza. So, um, yeah, I'd say that that's the one thing I'd criticize about the video. Yeah, pizza is incredibly nutritional. Um, <laughs> we want to move on, but that piece is Drake and the Death of Hip Hop. It's a YouTube video by FD Signifier. It's a very good video, very detailed. Again, it's sponsored by HelloFresh. I'm just saying, you know, we could also be sponsored by HelloFresh one day if they want to, if they, if any of them are Central Sauce patrons. Uh, and by patrons, we mean people who pay attention to us. Um, so thank you guys for talking with me about that. And finally, we're going to move to our third piece. pieces from the ringer it's called stories to tell the deaths of the notorious big and tupac through the eyes of the people who covered them so more discussion of hip-hop and generations and significant moments in hip-hop history from a very different lens so brandon i'll let you take it away from here absolutely yeah so by bringing this piece to the show we are going beyond meta this is music journalism on music journalism about music journalism um so in some a lot of ways it's perfect for the podcast and the main reason i wanted to bring it is because like you mentioned elliot um is a lot about the lens right you know it approaches music journalism from a way that we don't often approach it on this show uh, we typically are bringing stories by freelancers that we personally keep up with, and that means we're talking about stories that are often um, pitched and reported independently, right? These are stories that, you know, someone is not going into a newsroom 40 hours a week. Um, it's an idea they come up with because they want to cover it, and they want to cover it in a specific way. Um, so this story, you know, really reminded me that music journalism also happens in a newsroom environment, a 40-hour-a-week job with a living news cycle, and that the deaths of Biggie and Tupac weren't just covered by think pieces and deep dives, but by the same kind of breaking news cycle that covers major news events. Um, this is made even more personal by the way that music media and the people behind it were so entwined with the atmosphere that led to these killings. Uh, a lot of this article is, you know, it's, it's quotes from interviews with the journalists, uh, specifically who are working for Vibe and The Source, um, and were, you know, assigned these stories by an editor. You know, they had to pivot last minute, like, because this was a component of their beat. Um, and, you know, it's a major piece of the news cycle at that time, right? So um, the source had just featured Biggie on the cover of its latest issue right before his death. And Vibe had just controversially fanned the flames of the conflict with the East versus West cover. And I think a quote that best highlights what I mean uh, when I talk about how this piece approaches music journalism differently than we typically do on this show, especially when it comes to, you know, the pitching process and uh, the story formation process. Um, Light explained that the weight of covering Tupac and Biggie's killings played a significant role in his decision to leave Vibe in 1997. It was so difficult and exhausting. And that feeling that I didn't get into writing about music to have to spend all of our time writing about crime and murder investigations, Light says, a lot of it was just feeling like, man, I just don't know how long I can sustain this as the focus of what our work is. Um, I'm going to quote our, our good friend Mickey Heller back here um, when he jokes about, like, I don't know how anyone would get into music journalism for the money, right? 
people get into music journalism because they're passionate about music. They're passionate about writing. Uh, they want to talk about it. They want to find new ways to think about it, um, to explore it. You know, um, this is heavy. Like when this happened, this is heavy. You know, this isn't the reason that a lot of these people got in. And I just imagine like, you know, spending so much time in this industry with that kind of passion for the music and for the writing and working your way up to that dream staff job, right? And then we have an example here of a journalist who quits because it's too much, because it's not what they got in for um, to cover this sort of traumatic. And trauma is the right word because these these journalists are not just, you know, parachute journalists reporting on this from a distance. They were right there. A, a good part of the writing of this piece um, let me bring the journalist name back in here. A good part of the writing of Julian Kimball in this piece details like this series of events that leads up to the murders. And, you know, for, for a general audience might not have been familiar with all these series of events, but when you are a beat reporter in a newsroom, you are intimately familiar with every single step. You are intimately involved in the tension of the story, right? Like that's, that's your 40 hours a week or more. Um, especially more when, when we talk about when this death happened and we had to switch to, you know, one of the quotes, I think for the source within 48 hours, they had to change their entire cover from something else to cover this story. Uh, they had to change the entire content of the magazine to cover this story. You know, it's a news environment. That's a 48 hour turn. Um, and I love the piece, the way that the piece comes full circle at the end by using this situation and the impact that it had on journalists to talk about how it still happens. Uh, this is something I always try to do in my writing and something I really appreciate that other journalists do um, is that no story is self-contained, right? No story ends with the last period. Um, all these stories, they still affect, you know, the way the world functions. They still infect the way that people think, right? Um, so this paragraph here towards the end, uh, Marriott also remembers being head down in the work. The historic element of it was way in the periphery. There was a sense that, okay, this is a moment, but trying to live up to that moment as a journalist or writer took up all your time and energy. There was no stepping back like, oh, let's assess this. It was more like, okay, how can I accurately write what the feeling is right now? There was a big challenge, and I feel like I failed in so many ways because when you try to bring those emotions to words, there's so much lost in translation, right? You know, that's, that's your job. That's what your boss is sitting there and telling you to do. And you are processing the trauma of it yourself through the closeness. So, yeah, I just really wanted to bring this piece because I like that that new frame. Um, and in a very nerdy way, you know, it's focused on music journalism and music journalists, you know, and that's what we do on the podcast. So what did, what did you guys think, I guess? No, yeah, it, I thought it was a really heavy piece because of the idea of like responsibility that's in the piece i really thought it was um yeah it carried a really emotional heft because like you're hearing these journalists talk about how the way they covered the beef between bad boy and death row may have emphasized the conflict even more which heightened with these two you know deaths which were on such a scale that are you know, unfathomable for the industry, right? You 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 covered this thing in a way that that was designed to sell magazines, and it ended up not just putting the rug out of hip hop, you know, from the beneath the feet of hip hop as 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 a genre. And I think 
um, listening to these journalists kind of um, weigh that in their minds at the time and now is really, really interesting. Um, especially because everyone kind of like had a, had a different kind of reaction to it, you know. You you have the quote from, um, oh, I, I didn't write it down, I forgot off the top of my head. Maybe you can let me know, Brandon, but he was saying, like, he was editing, I think it was Vibe, and he was like, it was the most morbid thing ever. I had one issue for if Tupac survived and one issue for if Tupac died. And just, like, processing that as a cultural commentator. Because another thing that was really cool about this piece was the context that um, Julian set up. Because he talks about how mainstream publications, like really big publications like the LA Times and such, weren't covering hip hop because they were too far away, from, they're too far removed from the culture to cover it properly. And how um, the journalists who did cover hip hop, they were accused of being too close to it. And you have this great quote from Daniel Smith saying, Yeah, we were too close to it because we loved it, you know? And you think about how. Um, these journalists were the people covering hip-hop and how much responsibility they had. Because, you know, we can talk about people who cover hip We are people who cover hip-hop now, right? Um, but our thoughts can be just drops in the ocean at the end of the day. You know, we're not the only people covering this space. As far as we go to find a niche... There's still going to be other other people and probably people who be who listen to more than us, you know. But there's different back then. It was them. It was them. Their coverage, that magazine cover, was everything. Them putting East Coast versus West Coast on the cover meant a lot and it impacted a lot, you know. Me writing something like that now doesn't matter, really, does it? It would just get sucked under the rug. But then it was it was everything. And then um, yeah, like you're talking about the end of the piece. Um, Julian has this quote where he says there's little time to think about the fact that you're living through history when the task of properly documenting it is staring back at you Um, not only you know relevant then but relevant now to like just the weird times we've been living through you gotta wonder how we'll look back on the other journalism now and how a lot of things are expressed now whether we'll be like you know that was covered well that was or be like oh no that was covered to make people scared and to um, exacerbate the problems. And you could argue the same thing here, that the... Um, again, it comes back to capitalist interest, man. Shout out to Mickey. <laughs> it's Mickey's thing that he always says on the podcast. You know, the, the solution is to dismantle capitalism. If you want things covered properly and carefully, you dismantle capitalism because that's the reason why um, they had their East Coast versus West Coast cover on there is ultimately for the fact that you wanted it to sell but whether that was directly affecting the beef who's to know you know who who is to know but you know they the journalists who made it certainly seem to think that they certainly seem to have that way on them um so yeah it was a really heavy piece a really interesting piece and again another piece where the journalist is letting other people speak and just kind of uh, interweaving these quotes in, in a key of way. So, yeah, brilliantly written and, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that, that quote, just to read that quote you referenced there at the beginning, is from uh, Selwyn Hines, who's referring to the two different covers. 
And the way it's referred to says just the psychic dissonance of being like, okay, here's the package if Tupac dies, here's the one if he lives. The psychic dissonance, like the 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 imagery of even just the the word choice there. Yeah, it's it's it's. I think one of the scariest things about kind of just just living, right, uh, is that. You don't know the moment when everything just changes. It's just, it just hangs around and maybe it never comes, right? You could live a life where generally things are pretty even keel. There are always turning points, there are always big moments, but how many people can say that they lived close to that moment when Tupac and Biggie died? And I think time and the strange relationship our culture now has through social media with violence, with death, with controversy has whittled down the Tupac and Biggie situation in a way that has not really allowed us to really grasp the trauma of it all. And I think that that's, that's kind of a, an encompassing thing when it comes to hip-hop figures dying in general, right? Like, I I know, you know, Donna Claire Chessman at DJ Booth wrote a ton of pieces after Mac Miller passed away about Mac Miller and different parts of his career and his life and his death. And it was called The Year of Mac. And I don't think still that if you asked her she would say it's fully processed, right? It's something you do to try to process, but we don't really have the full bandwidth as human beings to to, to, to process something because none of us have experienced death if we're still alive, right? In terms of really having died. And nobody really who has experienced it around them can fully summate it because it's it's a consideration of so many things that are not only scary and, 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 and morbid for us, but are just not fathomable. And when you think about where Tupac and Biggie were in their careers, it's talked about in the article as well about like Biggie was on the precipice of really blowing up on another level, right? And Tupac, you know, he was on the set of his next big film when he was having that interview with one of the journalists who was talked to for this piece. You know, they're and then 24, right? Biggie was 24, Tupac was 25, right? Like, I'm 25. You know what I mean? It's just not... It's not something that... You know, different people have different ways to process trauma and, and messed up stuff. You know, we, we, we can joke, we can laugh, we can cry, we can do whatever, but when we move on it's still there because there's just no there's just no closing that and that's what trauma really is and i think hip-hop when we look at it as a culture we you know discussed this somewhat when it came to the fd video we just talked about you know it is a culture that has evolved and, and shaped with generations but those generations are interlinked even with all their dissonance and it's a culture that has experienced collective trauma over and over again. Perhaps with this 
moment in time being one of the one of the most difficult traumas to process and nobody ever really knows how to talk about that because how can you but if we think about where hip-hop is now you know how, how many artists this is talked about in the piece as well how many artists over the past few years have died from violence I've, alone let i've alone got the paragraph drug. in front of me actually i was gonna read yeah it. I'll go ahead go for uh, it in the quarter century since Tupac and Biggie's killings, subsequent generations of writers have similarly been forced to ponder what comes next after tragedy. Mac Miller died of a drug overdose in 2018, about a year after Lil Peep and a year before Juice World. Nipsey Hussle was shot and killed in 2019 in front of a South L.A. space he had revitalized. Like Hussle, Memf Memphis rapper Young Dolph was shot and killed in his hometown last November. A month later, Los Angeles' Drakeo the Ruler was fatally stabbed backstage at a festival just miles from where he grew up. The list of lives lost to violence throughout this year is long. Big L, Freaky Ta, Jam Master J, Mac Dre, Proof, XX Temptation, Pop Smoke, King, Va King Vaughn, and on and on. Although Tupac, Biggie, and hip-hop in general existed on different levels of popularity during the 90s, these two are the points of reference for everyone old enough to remember what it felt like receiving the news of their deaths. Smith emphasizes with generations, empathizes with the generations that have followed. I try to let that put it in perspective, what those years were like for us. Everybody has their people or heroes. Those were ours and they were taken from us. I think we, with retrospectives, often we run the risk of turning trauma like this into lore almost, you know, especially for generations who didn't experience it. You know, it becomes, the death becomes a part of the story, right? You see that so often with Tupac and Biggie um, because of, you know, even the names of the albums like Machiavelli, um, you know, the whole, the whole idea of, you know, the, you know, faking his own death, the Machiavelli, the reincarnation, um, Biggie's album, Ready to Die, you know, and then um, he died, I believe, what was like two, two weeks after it releases, Um and when you have a lot of writers reflecting on this, you know, and they bring in how, you know, especially when they're trying to tie it to the music, you run the risk of making it part of a story, making it part of a lore. Um, and these these artists were not con like considering their death when they were making their, you know, they weren't considering their upcoming death as part of the substance of the music. And we run the risk of doing that when we when we write retrospectives, right? And that's one of the reasons I so appreciate this piece for really separating the music from the death, the music from the trauma. You know, these two things are not just like parallel things that go hand in hand. Like these were real people, you know, real people, not just who died, but real people who experienced their deaths. Right. Right. And I, I think that that is, it's very important to point out, but I think one of the frustrating things too is that it almost seems like we only ever point that out when somebody dies, right? Like it, it takes something really tragic to happen for people to be like, hey, these are human beings, right? Like violence is bad. And I understand that, you know, heavy moments lead to heavy reactions. But I think when we look at today, right, and we look at things that are happening around us, um, you know, something as, as I, like ideologically silly as what happened in the Oscars last week, right? Will Smith slapping Chris Rock. Like, we set 
and we 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 create a lore right and we create it we create a sort of fantasy novel around it, right? I mean, it becomes a, a, a thing that we dissect and everybody has a little bit of a different story on it, a different spin. And it just becomes like something of a, of a kind of living film or something that we, we, we digest. And it's nothing, it's not to say that there's nothing wrong with laughing again. Like, like we all have different reactions to different things. And as long as we're not actively hurting each other, that's one thing. But at the same time, like, you can't know when somebody's gonna die. And so when you know that people are going through these high levels of trauma, that we've gone through these high levels of trauma over and over again already in a space like hip hop culture, and, and it, it should give us some incentive to every now and then, whether it's once a week or once a day or something, to, to just reflect on like who it is we are talking about. Like when we're talking about celebrities, when we're talking about rappers, like, who are they, ultimately, if not just, like, human beings who have their own set of circumstances and traumas to deal with? Like, how do they wake up in the morning, right? Like, what's their routine? Like, what do they like to do when they're bored, right? Like, why do we think about them only in the terms of, like, these characters in the play in our head? Why can't we also have some moments to think about their humanity? Because when they die... When, when the next person, because somebody else is going to die at some point in the next month, in the next year, and something else is going to happen, and something else is going to happen, you know, we're not going to be able to really learn or move on or heal if we haven't really taken the time to realize that these are all human beings, right? And that somebody who maybe from this, this background that we don't understand and from this lifestyle and going through these things we don't understand ultimately is a human being. And that that could be us in a different situation, in a different world, right? And if we are able to do that, I think we'll have a better path towards criticizing each other, much less like empathizing and helping each other. Because ultimately, any view of the world that's critical or that's discursive is broken if it fundamentally doesn't register that the people they're talking about is people, right it's it's people and so i think a piece like this it, it's very it's very morose it's very morbid and it partially it's because of obviously the subject matter but also because we don't know how to process that subject matter and i think if we can process pieces like this if we can read them and talk about them it will allow us to build some of the language and to build at least some of the the empathy that's needed so that we can proceed in a better way do you know what I mean? Yeah. And when we, I think one of the biggest things we face today when it comes to this, when we talk about, you know, differences in media atmospheres, um, is that our media atmosphere today is so fast that it risks trivializing these things. Um, you know, back then it was massive. It was impactful. It was, it shook the industry for a long, long time. And now, you know, we have whole paragraphs of deaths and so many of these seem to fly by, you know, for different people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Ryan, uh, we were talking, me and Brandon, a lot in the past couple of minutes, so I don't know if there's anything you wanted to interject with as well. Um, um, not much. You guys did brilliantly. But, um, yeah, I just think I really, I really picked up your point about when an artist dies, it's easy to make it about us individually, right? You know, 
it's about the loss of the music almost and that's a difficult thing to shake honestly because that's that's our experience that's our relationship with these artists for a lot of the time it's like man you made you make stuff that i love and now you're not around to make the stuff that i love but at the end of the day like you said it's about reminding like that's a human being you know it's bigger than that it's bigger than what my experience was with this person it's it's more fundamental than that and yeah like you said it's it's like a cultural empathy that we kind of lack um and that hopefully we can start to build because death happens it just does um so yeah 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 well that piece is stories to tell the deaths of the notorious big and tupac through the eyes of the people who covered them by julian kimball for the ringer um Previously, we talked about FD Signifier's video essay, Drake and the Death of Hip Hop, and Mix Mag, uh, the piece by Becky Buckle entitled How Deaf DJs Are Revolutionizing the Club Experience. I think with all three of these pieces, we touched on things that great journalism is able to do, um, or just great talking, great conversations able to do, which is humanizing, you know, humanizing marginalized people, humanizing people that we don't like and humanizing people that tragically pass away or that are just part of our general pop culture curriculum, in a sense. Looking at people more humanistically, more as people, is something that I hope we are able to do more and more with our art because it's something that we're always going to need help doing, something that societally we are all struggling to, to figure out. And I think it's great that each of those three pieces, as different as they are in terms of subject matter, eventually led back to that place. So with, if you've got some stuff that you want to share with us, whether it's more lighthearted or if it's more serious discourse, please, audience, share it with us. Uh, independent writer's work is something we're always looking for. Uh, great articles, sometimes video essays or podcasts work as well please feel free to send it to us at Central Sauce. And also feel free to rate and review on the platforms that you are consuming our content on because it helps us. And uh, yeah, from Central Sauce, this has been Elliot with Ryan and Brandon. Thank you for listening. Thank you, guys. Thank you. This episode of A Search of Source featured Ryan Gore, Brandon Hill and Elliot Sang of the Central Source Cove Collective. The episode is edited by me, Chai Taylor, of the 5th Fem Podcast Network. Music of the show is fucked up by Basti, thanks to Jot Records for bid to use. This has been a Central Source and 5th Fem Podcast Network production, thanks to Basti, Jot Records, Central Source, to 5th Element and content that come in the episode could all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening, we hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source.